Welcome back, everyone. My name is Adam Armstrong. I'm from the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change. You're on the pulse. Today, our special guest, Jean Leroux, returns for his third and final episode with us. Jean is a research associate at the Digital Forensic Research Lab. Today, we'll be talking about his work at the lab and how that work affects mis- and disinformation in South Africa. So today, we wanted to chat a little bit about what the DFRL is and why this kind of work matters in South Africa. So maybe just tell us, what is, what is the DFRL? Uh, well, basically, we're the Digital Forensic Research Lab. Uh, we kind of tend to shorten that down to the DFR Lab. And we're a center within the Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council is a think tank that's based in uh, Washington, D.C. And our role is basically to investigate and analyze this information. Uh, we do this using open source techniques, like I mentioned in the, the previous session. And us specifically, uh, we were, the South African research unit was established um, in December 2019. And we've been running formally from, from January of this year, um, focusing specifically on sub-Saharan African uh, disinformation campaigns. And you said you, you're linked to an organization based in the U.S. Uh, the, the cynic in me wonders if, if you're taking instruction from the CIA. Um. <laughs> yeah, we, I've, I've had that quite a few times where I've been labeled a CIA spy or um, I think we are, yeah, between the CIA spies and the Soros-funded think tank, I mean, I've probably seen all of them. Um, I mean, we do get that quite a lot that uh, with our headquarters being based in Washington, we do get that claims, you know, we're being funded by the U.S. to do regime changes and all of these weird conspiracies. But, uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is that, I mean, both of the team members here in South Africa are South Africans. We both grew up here. And, I mean, there's no way that we're taking instructions to, you know, push any specific narratives or do any kind of research. So what is the kind of work that you're looking to do? Um, well, basically, there's, there's not a lot of disinformation research being conducted in uh, South Africa specifically and in the broader African region. Um, most of the disinformation um, publications that you've seen would have been about, you know, the Russian meddling in the U.S. elections or the way that, you know, there's Russian propaganda being used against the Ukraine or one of the border um, countries. There's not a lot of it that actually focuses on what's going on in, in Africa and in South Africa. Um, I mean, the example that we discussed last week about the Gupta bots was one of those things that just kind of went under the radar in the broader global disinformation space because the U.S. found that they were going through the exact same thing about a month after we were. So, I mean, for me, it's something that's quite close to the heart. I've been involved in these kind of digital investigations since 2016. Um, at News24, I got the chance to do that on a more full-time basis. And now with the DFR Lab, now it's kind of the best of both. I've got a full-time in a job looking at this information, looking at these bad actors. And I'm also being given the resources to do that in a way that I could never do at, at any of my previous jobs. That sounds really interesting. And in terms of choosing which topics you get to look at, how does that work? Uh, basically, we pitch. So um, if I find something that looks suspicious, um, I mean, a lot of my time is spent going through social media, seeing what's trending, um, looking at their specific topics that's, you know, ripe for, for exploitation. Um, and then looking at, 
you know, what's what's the conversation around those topics? Uh, once I found something that looks suspicious, I do a bit of surface research to figure out if it's worth uh, digging deeper into it. That then gets put into a pitch. The pitch gets sent over to our editorial team in the U.S. And once they've had a chance to look at it, they would then, you know, approve or they'd make suggestions or changes or, you know, ask us if we've got sufficient evidence to prove what we what we we're saying in the pitch. So there's no it's it's a an, it's a process that involves me taking something to them to to look at. And they would then suggest whether it's something that's newsworthy or not. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a case that there's, you know, instructions coming from some shadowy figure sitting over in the U.S. Uh, all of our pitches get sent through to our, our team and they origin, originate with us. It's uh, one of the perks of having a team in SA is you can have your finger on the pulse and kind of respond to things on social media with that local context. And so what are the sorts of things that you would be looking at or identifying as potential topics for researching? Um, I think the most or the easiest low-hanging fruits are usually trending topics. So if something is trending, if there's a specific hashtag that I can see early in the morning is trending, that's usually like a low-hanging fruit that you can you know, take. But, um, I mean, we've looked at, for example, um, on Facebook earlier this year, we found a marketing company that was setting up COVID-19 information groups in order to, you know, use the membership to sell face masks. So in conjunction with these COVID-19 support groups, uh, the individual that was running the marketing company also set up a face mask company. And they were then trying to use the people in that group as fodder to market their face masks and that was, for example, an investigation we did quite early in this year. Um, we looked at, for example, politicians um, trying to play the media. The example I used last week where the ATM sent this letter to Salamaposa containing this kooky conspiracy theory. And the way that they managed to get that to be amplified and circulated by traditional media houses. These are all kind of things that we'd kind of look at and pitch. And then obviously the bigger examples are things like, you know, accounts that are anonymous or, you know, hiding behind false profiles, trying to foment specific narratives. Uh, we looked at Tracy Zilla earlier this year, which was an account that was using race baiting to monetize traffic to its websites. And then the Lerato Pillar account was an example where a, an anonymous account was using itself to, amplify negative sentiments towards foreign nationals. So it's, a, it's quite a wide berth. We've got quite a wide range of topics we can look at. Um, some of my colleagues, in, especially in the, um, the Eastern Europe, European parts, they are focused quite more on conflict reporting. So they do security reporting, tracking you know, uh, commando movements, tracking military conflicts, and geolocating specific battles and you know airstrikes and so on but um, in South Africa we've got a lot less need for that so we tend to be focused more on the kind of the social narratives and the social media discussions. And so what is the brief for the for your team here for the DFRL? Um, at this stage since we've only started this year it's it's quite a uh, I mean it's not a vast brief you're not expected to 
um, you know, churn out thousands of articles. Um, we are expected to do basically three things. We need to research and report on, you know, disinformation uh, instances. Uh, we've been doing that since January, so we're quite far along with that. Um, we need to capacitate individuals and especially journalists with the same kind of techniques and the, the tools that we use. Um, so that's something that we've now kicked off and towards the end of October, our first session um, will be going live. We will actually be taking a cohort of individuals and start training them in the same techniques um, that, that we use. And then the last one is like kind of you know, driving policy and engagement, getting people aware of these kind of campaigns, making sure that, um, you know, if there's a, you know, an orchestrated campaign going on, that the right people are aware of it. That if there's a, for example, if there's legislation to be considered, you know, for the criminalization of fake news, that we've got some way of reaching out to the politicians and the individuals making those decisions so we can, you know, provide our expertise and our knowledge to them so they can make informed decisions. Those are basically our three kind of main pillars that we, we're focusing on. It's research and reporting, capacity building, and then, you know, convening and, and policy discussions. Quite a lot for a new organization. Yeah, I mean, we've been kind of focusing on the research. Um, it's Initially, we did try to reach out to a few organizations, but if you're coming out of the blue, you've got no track record. There's no... I mean, there's no incentive for somebody to take you seriously if you haven't, you know, got the, the reputation to back it up. But I think with some of the reporting we've done so far this year, we've we've kind of built up our reputation a bit. And uh, I mean, going forward, we do see, you know, engaging in partnerships with some of the universities, you know, getting engaged with the, um, you know, the journalism programs, perhaps doing a lecture to you know, giving them these same kind of tools and techniques that we use so they can actually use that in the, the newsrooms eventually. Yeah, we, we came across you because of all of the work you've done on Ularato Pile. And so we at the CBC have wanted to partner with you guys. One of the things we've struggled with as a CBC is that when we talk to people about what we do, there's often this response that, oh, this is an American problem or this happens like this is about Russians and Ukrainians and how do you respond to that? What's your take on those kind of sentiments? I mean, I mean that's exactly the, the reason why we need somebody, um, you know, like us in South Africa doing the kind of work that we do. Um, these narratives are happening. It's not like we're being, you know, overseen because we're sitting on the southern you know, tip of Africa. Um, I mean, the, the Gupta bots was probably the, the first example we've had of a coordinated campaign campaign targeting South Africans. Um, there, there's examples in the nuclear lobby where we've seen, you know, Twitter accounts and social media accounts set up to push the nuclear as a form of energy um, in response to, from as far as we can tell, the nuclear deal that was fortunately stopped by the Constitutional Court, uh, I think back in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. So there's, there's definitely campaigns running. They might not be as effective or as, you know, internationally uh, covered as, for example, the U.S. elections are, but we are seeing coordinated campaigns happening in South Africa. And the more people there are that can bring awareness to that, uh, the better, you know, people would be able to uh, consume that kind of narratives online. If you have no idea that what you're seeing is part of a coordinated campaign, 
there's no way for you to temper your level of engagement or your level of investment in that in that narrative. Um, another byproduct of that is to is for journalists. I mean, we've seen quite a few times where an article or a piece is based purely on the basis of a single tweet and perhaps the response there too. And there are definite dangers to that. And I mean, some of the journalists might just not be aware that there are these narratives being crafted specifically to trap them and get them to, to publish their content into the mainstream. And why does it matter? What happens if these narratives are left unchecked? What, what are the consequences for, for everyday South Africans? Uh, the problem is at the moment, it's, uh, on social media, it's kind of you know, locked away and it's contained. Um, if, if it does escape from there, it will sometimes come out as, oh, I saw this guy on Twitter said one, two, and three, or, oh, I saw this Facebook post that one, two, and three happened. Um, the bigger threat is that if these narratives are left unchecked, if you don't investigate who's pushing a narrative, if you don't look at the facts and debunk it where it's uh, shown to be disinformation or misinformation, you end up running the risk that those narratives could make it into the mainstream media. And now it's no longer just some guy on Twitter saying something. Now it's a case of, oh, I saw on um, SABC News, or, oh, goodness, I read in the sweat in that, or, oh, News24 published that. And that starts giving credibility to narratives which would otherwise just be relegated to somebody on social media. Another example of that would be um, in 2019, uh, Shamila Batoy was accused of accepting a 1.7 million rand uh, payout from President Ramaphosa's CR17 election campaign. Um, the allegation started off of a screenshot from a cell phone that was very clearly an edited document that was created on the cell phone. It kind of looked like somebody took a screenshot of an SMS that was typed out. And this basically listed a bunch of names next to payments that were made, and it was captioned CR17 payments. I mean, anybody could create this. Anybody could make this thing up. But it went viral at the stage. It was kind of playing to the ear of the right crowd online, which amplified it even further. Now, the, that narrative kind of stuck to social media. It wasn't actually extracted and injected into the mainstream media um, until that, I think it was later that same evening that the post went viral when um, Batoy was speaking on SABC Morning Live and she was actually asked to confirm whether there's any truth to these allegations during the rounds. Well, the problem with that is that immediately injected this cooked-up story on social media that's based off of a screenshot of an SMS that anyone could write. And it became now a, a matter of national television. It was televised, alive. And even though Batoi respectfully declined to answer, she was pushed to actually respond to that. The moment that you then are in a position where you need to respond to an allegation like this, it's like, you know, the narrative becomes, oh, did you hear Shamila Botoy was apparently paid 1.7 million? I saw it on SABC this morning. And that's kind of the, the big danger with these narratives. If you leave them unchecked, if you leave them just to, you know, kind of go their course without any kind of debunking, without any, um, you know, investigation into the, the persons behind these narratives, you run the risk that they do become mainstream. So this work really matters. And it, it sounds, the other thing that struck me talking last week 
and the week before about the Gupta bots and about white monopoly capital and then Ularato Pile and put South Africans first is that these narratives are also involved in, in how we think about this country and how we think about what South Africa is and, and who belongs here, for example. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's one of the, the consequences of social media is that it's, it's built to shore up echo chambers. Um, the algorithms that populate your news feed on Facebook or your Twitter feed is built in a way that it will show you content that keeps you engaged. It's vying for your attention. It's hoping to keep you online and scrolling through the app for as long as possible. And the consequence of that is that you get shown narratives that keep you online. If you're shown something that you don't agree with, you're less likely to engage with that. And the problem is that it keeps building up. You keep on getting shown more and more things you agree with, and your worldview gets almost like fortified in that process. You keep seeing more content that you give. If you are, for example, um, you know, being fed a narrative that foreign nationals are to blame for high crime and you engage with that kind of content, Facebook and Twitter will show you more of that. If you are, you know, have the belief that there's a white genocide going on and you engage with that kind of content, Facebook and Twitter will keep on showing you more of that. And what that does is it, it kind of polarizes and shores you up in this echo chamber where everything you see relates to the stuff that you already believe in. And you don't get a chance to actually question your own views. And can I just ask quickly, so you're saying that if I engage with stuff around white genocide or around South Africans committing crime in South Africa on Twitter or on Facebook, the more of that stuff I click on, the more of it I read and comment on, the more of it I'll be shown. And it sounds also like what you're saying is that that may or may not have anything to do with whether Twitter or Facebook believes those things, whether they think that stuff's true or not. They just provide the content I'm going to engage mm -hmm. with. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, there, there, there's no way that, you know, somebody at Twitter or Facebook is actually scrolling through your feeds, looking at what's being said. They've got no cultural context. They look at vast um, swaths of data and, you know, patterns and the way people engage with certain content this is, you know, video over images, over plain text and so on. And all of that forms up. I mean, every time you use one of these apps, there's a data point that gets created for you. So they know exactly you're more inclined to engage with pictures than text, for example. Or if you get shown a video, you'd actually stop scrolling and watch the video before scrolling on. And that's the kind of things that they use to you know, keep you online for longer. And what they then also do is they look at specific patterns within within those those data points. So if you are in a kind of an echo chamber, even though it's a big, loose echo chamber of people that believe uh, that foreign nationals are stealing all our jobs, you'd see more of that content because Twitter starts serving you with more of these individuals because you've interacted with them before or they've kept you engaged uh, for longer. It's not a case that they're sitting there actively promoting it, but the algorithms are providing the most conducive environment for this to, to, to be perpetuated. And when you say echo chambers, what is, what is that? Uh, basically an echo chamber, that's something you, I mean, we see them quite often online where it's a group of individuals that share the same worldview. And what ends up happening is they form these echo chambers where they, so on a, in a very crude example, block everybody that doesn't align with their worldview. So say, for example, you'd find a group of people that believe uh, the COVID-19 vaccine is a conspiracy by Bill Gates. You'd find people in that echo chamber all believe that and they all 
kind of egg each other on and they find ways of confirming that belief. And the moment somebody steps out of line, questions them, or presents evidence that might not confirm with that, they'd be ostracized. So they'd be either blocked, they'd be muted, they'd be kicked out of the Facebook groups. And what that ends up doing is it keeps this this chamber, this little echo chamber where people are sharing the same kind of narratives. There's no way for, you know, a dissenting voice to enter into that. And the moment one does, they get ostracized and vilified quite quickly. So we have these echo chambers and we have Facebook and Twitter and these platforms sharing content to keep us engaged, regardless of whether that content's true or not. What does that mean for us as regular South Africans? Like if I want to keep my Facebook page, do you, how do I how do I navigate this this scary world which seems a lot more dishonest than I initially thought? I mean, you've got the the unfortunate consequence of these echo chambers is that they are polarizing because you engage with less views that don't align with your own, so you end up seeing things more starkly black and white than than they actually are. Um, I once had a mentor that that used to drill into me that the world is shades of gray; nothing is black or white. And echo chambers actually enforce the opposite. They make you see things in binaries. And um, as we've mentioned in one of our earlier discussions, you know, that complexity is something people shy away from from online. Um, I mean, in terms of users using their Facebook and, you know, it's important for you to be aware that things that you're seeing on your newsfeed is things that are being shown to keep you online and to keep you engaged for longer. It's not that this is what's, what's actually going on. This is a company that's using your time to sell advertising space that you're going to read over, trying to keep you on there for as long as possible. It's a kind of a scary thought to think that you're being manipulated by this entity from across the ocean to keep your eyes in place. And it's using narratives that you agree with or that you even just tangentially agree with to keep your attention for long enough so it can sell you a pair of sneakers in the background. Um, I think as a, as a takeaway from that, I mean, I just urge people when you are engaging with social media is to actively try and seek out a view that doesn't conform to yours. Even if you don't engage with it, even if you don't agree with it, just try and expand and break through that echo chamber and see something more of what's out there. I mean, you might find that there are valid points being raised from, you know, the ideological opponent of yours. Um, but it's something that you wouldn't even have had the opportunity to come across uh, if you hadn't decided to break out of that echo chamber in the first place. I think for a lot of people, it's it's much more comfortable. I know for me, it's much more comfortable to read stuff that I agree with and be told that I'm right. No, definitely. I mean, being told you're wrong is something that, I mean, even I, sometimes when, uh, you know, you publish a piece, people would raise very real and very, you know, um, valid objections to some of the stuff that you write, but you need to engage with them. Even if you don't agree with that, that statement, there's, I mean, there is value in just looking at it, reading it and deciding whether it's, it's, it's fitting or not. And it's, it's definitely uncomfortable. I think that's one of the reasons why people tend to shy away from it in the first place. I think this is also one of the issues we've had at the CFBC is realizing that as researchers, we view the internet as an information place, whereas for most people, I think it's about entertainment. And I struggle with, like, in terms of our own work, I struggle with how to address that or how, like, what is the solution for that kind of issue? Yeah, I mean, when the COVID-19 pandemic kicked off here in South Africa, one of the very first things that we noticed was that there's a lot of humor involved. I mean, this is a global pandemic. We At that stage, there was uncertainty about how 
uh, fatal it was, what the infection rates of this disease would be. There were these talks about an impending lockdown. And the first thing South Africans started doing was make jokes about it you know, online. So, I mean, as South Africans, we do have a penchant of joking about these things and making light out of sometimes very serious situations. And I think you make a very good point about social media being part entertainment and part information. Um, I think it's a case of making people more aware of that fact so that when they do go on there looking for information, they don't mistake the entertainment for information. And so do you... (laughs) People have joked with me. I mean, do, do you wear a tinfoil hat and keep all of your devices in a secure box and, and not go online on the weekends? Or how do you manage this for yourself? Well, basically, I, mean, I have been keeping a kind of a low profile since my, my public protector days. So, I mean, basically, my Twitter account is the only social media account that I, I use. Um, I've got Instagram and Facebook accounts that I use for investigation purposes, but I've shut down most of my personal accounts um, quite a long time ago, specifically because there are these investigations that you get involved with. Um, so in terms of just, you know, being a, wearing a tin for that, I am exceptionally skeptical about any kind of content I come across online. Um, I'm not sure if that's because of the work that I do or just because of I'm naturally inclined to be, to be a bit skeptical of, of the stuff that I read. But um, I think it's more to do with the, the content that I see than about actual, you know, device security and so on. And that being said, it is something to keep in mind when you are engaged with these kind of investigations for those budding digital Sherlocks out there is to, you know, keep your safety in mind as you're doing it. To, you know, something small like using a, you know, a dummy Facebook account to do your research is invaluable. Um, inevitably, you will accidentally click like on one of the photographs that you're going through. And it's, you know, it's quite hair-raising when that happens. But it diminishes the impact if you are using a dummy account to do that and not your own personal account. We're coming towards the end of this episode. And in wrapping up, I wanted to ask if you have two or three hints or suggestions for, for South Africans trying to navigate this, this new complicated digital world. Um, how do we manage our emotional well-being and our, our sanity and, and access good information. What suggestions do you have for people? Um, I'd probably say the, the biggest and the first um, you know, hint that I would provide is that if you come across content online that triggers you on an emotional level, stop and think about why it's doing that and why this person posted it. Um, I mean, it's been shown there's tons of research on the topic, but if, if something resonates you with you on an emotional level, you're more inclined to share that um, link or that story or that photo without even considering the content there. Um, the second thing that I would suggest is that be, be skeptical about the content you consume, but make sure that it's a healthy dose of skepticism. Um, it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole and distrust everything and anyone that you see online. That's obviously, you know, on, <laughs> on the, wrong, the wrong part of the spectrum. But maintaining a healthy dose of skepticism about the content that you see, um, you know, something small such as just asking, you know, where's the proof of this? You know, and not making and sharing topics without having some sight of the of the proof there. And maybe do the, just the last thing is just to be mindful of your own biases and prejudices as you consume social media. Uh, keep in mind that you are being um, marketed by you know social media platforms you are something that and your attention is something that they actively 
pursue. And they are actively trying to keep you online as long as possible. And be aware that the things that you're seeing online isn't necessarily a true reflection of what's going on in the real world. Thank you. That's really helpful. So just to sum up, I just wanted to check I got it all. The first point that you made was around noticing if I have a really strong emotional response to a particular piece or a news item or a a video I've seen online. And then the second thing you mentioned was to have a, you called it a healthy dose of, of skepticism. So being a bit skeptical about stuff that seems too easy to believe. And the third thing you mentioned was, was being aware of my own biases. Does this confirm my biases? Does this confirm what I already think I want to know about the world? That's perfect. Okay. John, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want South Africans to know about being online or about the work that you're doing at the DFRL? Yeah, I think I'd maybe just do a bit of a shameless plug for us. Uh, I mean, you can follow us on, on social media. Uh, we've got a Facebook account, uh, the Digital Forensic Research Lab. Uh, we've got a Twitter account at DFR Lab. And then also my own uh, Twitter account is at John underscore Leroux. Uh, we do publish all of our findings and our articles on there. And that's also the best place to go and look if we are announcing any of our training sessions and you know conferences and so on. Great. Jean, thank you so much. From the work we've done at the CABC, we can tell that you guys are definitely making the internet a safer and more honest place. So thank you so much for the great work that you do. And thanks for taking time to have a conversation with us today. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, Jean. And that was Jean Leroux from the Digital Forensic Research Lab talking to us today about the work that the lab does in myths and disinformation in South Africa. Subscribe to our channel and look out for new episodes on myths and disinformation in South Africa.